Welcome back to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. This is Chris Sims digging back into the archives for a timely and important episode. Cassie Rippey, the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Coquille Tribe in Coos Bay, Oregon, is the guest on this episode. And in the couple years that have passed since this was recorded, the Coquille Tribe and the Confederated Tribes of Coos, Lower Umpqua, and Sayuslaw are currently working toward having the largest traditional cultural property, or TCP, in the country recognized in Coos Bay, Oregon. This is a pretty big deal, so keep this issue on your radar. Also, if you've been listening to the most recent episodes, you've heard our new additions to the Go Dig a Hole crew, Tia Cody and Katie Tipton. Tia and Katie are joining me and Kirsten for new episodes, and right now they're all in Albuquerque, New Mexico for the annual meeting of the Society for American Archaeology. If you're there and you see them, go say hi. They're great people. If we're lucky, keep your fingers crossed, we might get a Women in Archaeology Go Dig a Hole crossover episode on the Women in Archaeology podcast. So head over to the Women in Archaeology blog for even more great content that doesn't make it into the Women in Archaeology podcast. I'm super thankful to be able to share this fun vehicle for archaeology outreach and advocacy with them, so I'm happy to share the love. Uh, happy SAA and safe travels to everyone going to or from New Mexico this week. Welcome to the 19th episode of the Go Dig a Hole podcast. Today I have Cassie Rippey with me, and she is a tribal historic preservation officer. Now, on a previous episode of the Go Dig a Hole podcast, we had Jessica Yaquinto, who is now the host of a brand new show called Heritage Voices. And she is a cultural anthropologist who works with tribal historic preservation officers but now i'm excited to have a tribal historic preservation officer on the show today so cassie if you could uh introduce yourself uh real quick and tell us you know who you're working for and and what you do and we'll go from there sure so i am the tribal historic preservation officer uh, and archaeologist for the coquel indian tribe down here in coos bay oregon basically i do a lot of things. So we do Section 106 consultation. Um, we do all the archaeology and cultural resource management. Uh, we do a lot of ethnographic studies. There, there's a lot that we wind up doing here. That's awesome. So do you have archaeologists uh, on on staff on the reservation that you work with? Or when you're doing archaeology, do you like hire out to outside CRM firms? Or how does that work? Well, so I am, I am the only archaeologist that we have on staff. We do occasionally um, contract out to archaeologists and CRM firms to help fill the load because as a staff of one, it can be kind of cumbersome to, yeah. to take care of all the projects that we have. Uh, but we, we do work with a, a whole host of, of other agencies that, that help us out. So could you tell us a little bit about the Coquille Indian tribe and the reservation? So the first thing I guess I can say is that we don't actually have a reservation the way that most people think of it. So I guess just a little bit of history. In the 1850s, the Coquille headmen signed some treaties with the United States government that were never ratified, one in 1851 and one in 1855. 
those treaties were supposed to give the land to the U.S. government in exchange for new land, new territory for them to go live on. The treaties were never ratified, but most of the tribal members were eventually forced off the land anyway. A lot of tribal members were sent up to the coast reservation in 1856 um, up north of Florence. Other tribal members were able to stay in the area and continue living on their lands by where, uh, marrying into white settlers' families. Following the disestablishment of the Coast Reservation, the Dawes Allotment Act in 1887 was established where people were given new land. Unfortunately, a lot of this land was not really desirable. It was broken up into these little puzzle pieces or checkerboards, if you want to call them and they were given land on hilly, mountainous property, stuff that wasn't really farmable. Uh, it was maybe too wet or too, too dry, depending on where they were. But it was property of, them, of their own where they could live, usually separated from other parts of their family, so they weren't always nearby their own family, which was really kind of an effort to break up that tribal mindset. So that's an example of like structural violence, you know, in, in many ways is, you know, the location of, of settling or, or rather resettling the Coquille Indians was, you know, it seems intentionally to disrupt family structures and to disrupt organization. Yeah, absolutely. And it was intentional by by all means. So things continued that way for a number of years. And a lot of the, the tribal members lost their property either through acts of nature or more commonly because they couldn't afford to keep it. Um, taxes were extremely high and they weren't able to pay back the, the government for the land or for those taxes. And so they lost the, their properties and were forced to either move to even less desirable property or move in with other family members. And um, it just kind of compounded on this, the situation that was. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's the kind of thing, like it, I had mentioned the, the structural violence of the spatial distribution of that, but then there's also the, I would imagine there's the intergenerational trauma of, you know, like the, like you were saying, they don't have land to pass on as an asset to the next generation or, the, you know, they don't have those kinds of, you know, like capital inv investments to pass on. And so, you know, if they don't have a formal reservation and a formal community, then that's that's a lasting disruption that you know it's basically the disruption is the is the thing that passes from generation to generation is would you say that's an accurate thing absolutely so and and that was only made worse in 1954 when the Coquille tribe was terminated as a federally recognized indian tribe oh, um, man. they were told by the government that they were not indian uh they in in addition to being told they had to you know, move off of their land and they couldn't uh, speak their languages and all these other things that had happened to them over the last hundred years, they were now told that they weren't who they were. They had to assimilate and become who society was, the, the current white society was telling them that they had to be. Um, and the, the Coquille Indian tribe continued to fight that for the next 35 years until 1989 when we were actually when the tribe was restored as a federally recognized tribe here in Oregon. Wow. So the the Coquille Indian tribe, I guess office or you know where where you work, what is the community like? It it sounds fairly disjointed. It's so it, it's not a traditional reservation. It's not what people tend to think of uh, mm. when they think oh it's, you're working with an Indian tribe. 
because uh, we weren't given that reservation property when when they were terminated. So when when the tribe was restored in 1989, the Restoration Act said, well, you can buy property, and that's where you can put your offices, your buildings, your your prop uh, your properties. Oh wow! So the tribe bought their own properties and the property where we have what we call our reservation as uh, the Kilkitch reservation is not actually a, a reservation it's a housing authority okay so we have that housing authority which is held in trust by the federal government and then we have a number of other properties that that the tribe has purchased through the years our main offices are actually not even on the Kilkitch property so our main offices are about 10 miles down the road uh, in the middle of town, right next to where we uh, have the casino. Um, and then we have another of a, a number of other properties that are uh, held in either trust or as fee property by the tribe or by our economic development company, SEDCO. The economic development properties include things like the casino. We have properties that we run for cranberry bogs. We have very healthy forestry department that we get quite a bit of our revenue from. Um, and then we have another a number of other properties just spattered throughout a couple of counties here in Oregon. Okay. So then are the the tasks that you do as as the tribe archaeologist, are, are the tasks that you're seeing mostly related to economic development and like the, the casino and the, and the forestry department? No, actually, I wind up having to, to deal with them very infrequently uh, okay. as far as economic development goes, which is, is nice because we have that, those things have already been established. I do work with them on new groundbreaking activities. If we're going to say put in a new road or if we want to put in a new cranberry bog, something like that. But we don't do a lot of those activities. Okay. I would say probably 95% of what I do is consulting with the federal and state agencies on their project. Oh, cool. So does it tend to be more of a preservation focus or more of like a, a compliance and salvage focus? I, I wish that there was a heavier preservation focus. Uh -huh. we, we do a lot of salvage work here, unfortunately. We have a lot of big projects, big ticket items that come through and we, we get pushed by federal and state agencies to to get the 106 review or the goal five review finished and completed and just signed off it becomes just a box to check off rather than actual consideration of what's happening and sometimes the activities actually happen before they even come to us oh yeah i'd imagine so and it also sounds like the the difficulty of you know having the preservation focus seems to be also a product of the history of the tribe that you had mentioned, you know, the disruption of land, the the breaking apart of ownership and, and such, you know, it seems like that would be in itself a fairly difficult thing to manage from a preservation standpoint. It, it most certainly is. You know, the, the role of a TIPO, which is a little funny, it, it's uh, actually that we get to act as the SHPO. Um, but only on tribal land. Okay. So we, we can we review those projects and, and don't have to get sign off from the State Historic Preservation Office if it's happening on those tribal lands. But anything that happens off tribal lands, we have to go through the SHPO, we have to go through that process. And so, for example, we have a project that we're working on up in this little town called Powers. And it's an, a beautiful little town, uh, about 700 people, and they need a new wastewater treatment plant. They're town happens to sit on top of one of the largest and most central village sites for our area. And unfortunately, because it's 
such a rural area, there's been a lot of disturbance, a lot of looting, and it's it's very it's all privately owned. There's no state ownership. There's no federal ownership. There's things that surround it, but the the actual town is all privately owned. And uh, the way that the state and federal law, or, yeah, state and federal laws are set up are such that um, on private property, we have to go through a lot of hoops uh, to get permission to even walk on the property and, and um, do any visual inspections. And this project, they're going to be replacing the entire wastewater treatment plant for the whole city, um, which basically, if you've never been on a wastewater treatment plant, you're digging up the entire town. There's not a single piece of land that's not going to be disturbed. So when it comes to that, they say, okay, well. Yeah. And it's going to be deep too. Like if, if there is a site mm-hmm. there, it none of it will exist after yeah. the center goes in. Yeah. There. And so trying to, to consult on this project and, and, and review it, we're saying, well, you know, we have to get permission from the landowners. In a lot of these cases, the landowners don't want to work with the tribes. They don't. They certainly don't want to work with the federal government. So despite the fact that the tribes had lived there before these private landowners did, they, they don't care. It's, uh, it becomes more about their, their current ownership and, and their privacy rights. That is really difficult. So do you have any overlap as a, a TIPO? With the Oregon SHPO? Yeah, we work with the Oregon SHPO quite frequently, mm-hmm. mostly in that all of our sites are, a lot of our sites are on state and federal land. So we work with that Oregon SHPO to kind of create a management plan and, and figure out how to tackle all of these projects that are happening on both state and federal and private land. That's really I mean, it's really cool how, how many different things are involved, but I'm, I'm sure it's also quite challenging as well. But uh, I think it makes for an interesting puzzle, you know, at least from the outside, an interesting puzzle to work with. Absolutely. It, uh, in, in some cases, there are enough things going on that um, we, we have trouble keeping track of, of just about every, everything that's, that's been going on. So we, we do our best, though, to, to keep track. Yeah, definitely. So I guess the, the next big question I have for you is, how does, how does someone get involved uh, with working with a tribe? Uh, you know, since the, the show is aimed at a lot of undergrads and early career archaeologists, uh, what would you say to an undergrad or someone just starting out um, who would like to start working with tribes? What would be the starting point? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I got lucky working with the tribe. I'm not a tribal member. Uh-huh. And in these positions, it tends to be tribal members um, in, in these positions. But if, if you can get into this, it's the most rewarding job that you will ever have. So I have a bachelor's degree, a bachelor's of science in anthropology, with a master's in anthropology with a specialization in bioarchaeology. Oh, cool. In the state of Oregon, you have to have a master's degree to be a qualified archaeologist. So really, for the most part, we won't work with anybody that doesn't have a master's degree. Uh-huh. So don't stop education. Continue on is the first, <laughs> first uh, piece of recommendation I can give. The second thing I would say is that if you can work with CRM companies or do field work as early as you can, and if at some point when the CR, when you start working for CRM companies as your PI or you start doing some of the upper level work with those CRM companies, the biggest thing that I would say is to start consulting with those Native American tribes. When 
when we have archaeologists and CRM companies come into our territory and start doing work within our, our ancestral areas or our areas of interest, and they don't come talk to me or they write something up without, you know, ever conferring with our offices or they say they've talked to us and haven't, which happens um, more frequently than I like, we won't work with that company again. We won't recommend them. Um, a lot of people will actually come to us and say, which companies would you like us to, to get quotes from? Which companies do you like to work with? And, you know, we, we're going to work recommend the companies that we trust that have a good reputation. And those are the the agencies that we like to work with. And um, so that's, that's the biggest piece of advice that I can give you is that um, communication with the tribes is a huge, huge piece of, of the puzzle that new archaeologists and even older archaeologists that have been in the area for a while um, tend to forget. Yeah, and I think that that's particularly important to understand given the history that you've, that you've laid out for, you know, this particular tribe, you know, they've, they've had a good number of tensions with the government and all that. So building a good trust relationship is crucial to working with this tribe, but I'd imagine with many other tribes as well. Absolutely. You know, we, we get a lot of agencies uh, that will come in and, and say that um, they've done consultation, but they really all they've sent is a letter or they've left us a voicemail. And, you know, I said earlier, we're we're busy, you know, we have a lot going on. Yeah. Um, the consultation isn't just a letter. It's not just a phone call and it's not just a box. So building that, that trust relationship, not just with the archaeologists, but with, with the agencies themselves is really important. And so when we are trying to consult on these projects, having these in-depth conversations, a lot of time I prefer to do conversations in person if we can, um, just because we, we know that you know, we're being heard when we can actually see the people that we're talking to. Absolutely. Are there any are there any public archaeology programs or internships that are available uh, through your tribe? So through the tribe, we don't. Yes and no. We work with in the summer times. We work with our youth corps, which um, is not open to the public. It's actually open to tribal youth and youth that live on the, the property. But we do occasionally take in uh, volunteers and things like that just to to get some community involvement with, with our project. Uh -huh. um, more often, we work with the universities in Eugene and in Ashland. It's uh, University of Oregon and Southern Oregon University. Um, they have a number of field schools that they put on, and so we partner with them and with their public archaeology days to try to reach out to the community. Nice. And I guess only tangentially related to that, uh, do you have any, is there a, a relationship with any of the professional archaeology societies like AOA or OAS in Oregon? There have been strained relationships with some of the, of the professional archaeology uh organizations in the past and that's something we're trying to correct now uh -huh. and in the past a lot of that was because it was uh, a lot of those organizations were not so much professional as they were avocational oh right and avocational archaeologists have done a lot of damage in this area every day we're getting calls just about every day we get calls from people that say oh well when in the 60s i was working on this project and i have this set of remains or i have this set of, of artifacts that i've been holding on to for 45, 50 years. What should I do with them? Oh my and goodness. And they call themselves archaeologists because they, they worked on an a sanctioned archaeology project. And it's it's awful. But that has changed, you know, in the last 50 years. Unfortunately, because of the past, uh, that 
mindset and that change hasn't quite gotten through um, in communication. And so we, I have been working with groups like OAS and others that are professional agencies and professional societies to bring them back in with the tribes so that the tribes know archaeologists aren't all avocational. It's, it's, a, it's a good relationship to have. And so it's, it's just a slow process. Yeah, which feeds back into the, the point you made about the importance of building a trust relationship. You know, it sounds like that relationship, like you said, it was strained. You know, there was definitely a betrayal of trust. And in this instance, with blatantly illegal practices where they were just keeping remains and, and artifacts from sanctioned projects, uh, you know, it's illegal and incredibly unethical. Uh, so there's a lot of ground to cover in building that relationship back up. So that's totally understandable. Yeah, there there absolutely is. And that's one of the big projects that, that we take on in this office is finding out what those projects were, because a lot of those were, uh, unfortunately, state-sanctioned projects um, at the time. And so we uh, have taken on this in this office, going back and trying to reach out to those people and saying, hey, can you help me track down this project, the field notes for this project, who worked on it, uh, where artifacts or whatever may have gone so that we can try to piece back those those things and that information. Yeah. Well, do you have any interaction with other TIPOs or other tribes in Oregon or that region? I do. Um, we, we have a neighboring tribe, the Confederated Tribes of uh, Coos, Lower Umpqua, and Sayusla, right here in Coos Bay. So we're neighbors and we work... Um, have a lot of overlap with some of the projects that we do here in Coos Bay. So we're, we're frequently talking about um, ways that we can work together on those projects. But in general, we, we meet with the, all the state agencies and the tribes get together four times a year with something called the Culture Cluster. And it's essentially meeting for the state agencies to give updates to the tribes and for the tribes to, to voice their concerns and, and issues at these regular meetings so that there is never ever a situation where, oh, well, I didn't know that, you know, uh, this project was going on. Well, why didn't you come to us? And, you know, we, we haven't heard about this project for forever. So it, it kind of gives us an extra seat at that, that section 106 notification table where they can, they can address those issues if maybe they haven't heard from us or they know this project's coming up and they want to warn us about it. Or uh, we have some issues about a non-specific project, but just policy issues in general. We can, we can address those. And so all the TIPOs and the cultural resource representatives for the tribes get together at those meetings and it, it's a really good opportunity for us to get together as well for after those meetings and talk about projects that we have going on, ways that we can work together, and just in general, just say, you know, we haven't seen you in a while. How are things going? Is there something that we can help you with? Nice. I think that that's an incredible part of your, your role that, you know, like you had said earlier, it's an incredibly rewarding role to have, but I think that that's a good example of how rewarding it can be to be building a more inclusive community. And, you know, given the, the past that the Coquille tribe has had, you know, you're in many ways building a community from scratch and if not just rebuilding. So what are some of the, what are some examples of like productive inroads that you've seen in kind of building an inclusive community there? (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's a complicated question. (laughs) You know, the best things that, that we've 
seen here are when, well, we really like to work with the, the tribal group as a whole, but we also like to work with different agencies and, and companies one-on-one. So a lot of what we like to, to have agencies do is actually come in and speak with us one-on-one. And then following that, we'll meet with the, the, the other tribes to collaborate. One of the projects that we have that we work on here in Coos Bay is called our fourth grader Indian education program. Um, so we work with the Confederated Tribes of Coos, Lorimco, and Sayuspa, and with the Coos History Museum on a program where we reach out to every fourth grader in Coos County, as well as some in Curry County and Douglas County. All of those kids go through a series of, of visits. So first, someone visits their classroom and talks to them about stereotypes about Native Americans, what is a Native American, and they give a brief overview of what are the tribes in Oregon, what are the languages, where are they, Those just a brief overview. Um, and then there's another visit uh, by museum and, and tribal staff to the classrooms where we do just a little bit more um, education. Then we take the kids out to the museum, the Coos History Museum, and we take them through the exhibits and we talk to them about uh, what's in the exhibits and what they think those kinds of tools were used for. We talk a little bit about basketry and things. And we do a living history where they've actually got a little kind of skit that's drawn up that uses historical figures, um, including tribal members, to kind of give a brief story about what it would have been like living 100 years ago. And then after that, all the kids come out to the plank house and they, we go through a, a couple hours long presentation where we talk about potlatch, we talk about plank houses, canoe history, canoe culture, first foods, we do storytelling, we talk more about basketry, and then we actually feed the kids salmon, So, and a lot of them have never had salmon before, surprisingly, <laughs> so that's a fun little finale for them. So that's actually the entire month of March is, is us going through one classroom a day uh, with all these kids. And that has been fantastic because it really reaches out to the kids. The kids go back to their house and say, Mom, guess what I learned? I learned about this. Did you know you're not supposed to pick up an artifact when we're out on the beach? We, we need to take this stuff that we have back to the tribe. And yeah. then I get a phone call from Mom saying, okay, I didn't know this. What can we do or what should we do? And that's always great. And it, it works uh, it gives us a good opportunity to work with the other tribes because we, we collaborate on this project and with the, the museum who we work with on a number of projects. And it's, it's great to get that Indian education out to the public. Um, you know, there are a lot of people that don't even realize the tribes are still here. I were in the middle of town and every day somebody comes up to me and says, you work for the tribe? I didn't know there was a tribe here. There's a huge casino right in the middle <laughs> of the, the building and you didn't know? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> It's right under your nose. But I think that that's an important point that you bring up is a lot of people, I think that that's got to be a persisting myth or misconception is, is that there's no tribes anymore. And, you know, these are living communities. They're, they're not, you know, entirely, you know, archaeological. They're living communities. And that's something that I missed out on. Uh, I grew up in the southeast where there's not much overlap or not much um, engagement with, you know, non-tribal communities and, and tribal communities, but also like even when I was going through school for archaeology, you know, it just wasn't really a thing we covered, you know, working with living descendant communities and all that. Uh, so I think that, you know, especially reaching 
students at such a young age is is pretty crucial like it at fourth grade you know if i remember right that was when uh, i think most students are going through u.s history so it's important to cover you know uh, native history in in that uh segment but also i think it's cool because kids teach their parents things too so that's that's a good inroad for families as well yeah and it, it's an absolutely fantastic opportunity and you know, we work with a lot of the museums in the area to try to make sure that their their displays aren't just prehistory. Yeah. The University of Oregon just updated their museum displays, and one of the requests that we had was to make sure that they included a living culture so that it, it had that component that um, it no longer looks like when you walk through it that, oh, well, you get to 1850s and suddenly everybody's gone. So now they've, they've got this great component where they talk about the living culture of Native Americans. And so that's something we try to work with on with a lot of the different museum displays and, and agencies that come in to do projects with us. We just finished shooting a, a video project with a group called the Wisdom of the Elders. They're doing a whole project on climate and culture change and, or culture and climate change, sorry. And our segment was about how we uh, harvest lamprey, even though they are not exactly an endangered species, they're, they're pretty close. And so we've got this whole segment that's gonna be coming out soon about lamprey and the significance of them to the tribes today. Well, that's really cool. Well, what are some other, other programs you've got going on? You had mentioned some collaborations with the other tribes. Do you have any like uh, collaborative projects that you'd like to talk about? Um, well, one project that we're working on with some uh, the other coastal tribes and some other universities in the area is a project with BOEM and NOAA they're actually going to be doing a paleo landscape study here in well, over all of uh, the West Coast, but they're doing one here in Oregon, I think this summer, which is going to be really exciting. They're uh, bringing out the Nautilus from uh, NOAA with Bob Ballard, which I'm super excited about. Yeah, that's and, awesome. Uh, yeah, so I, I fangirled pretty hard about that, but <laughs> that's okay. The Green Ron tribe has put together some really great documents in anticipation of that project, and they've they've really kind of been really helpful for for not only the agencies but for the other tribes to um, get that project off the ground. So we're really looking forward to starting that project. That is really cool. So, given the fragmented history of the Coquille tribe, has your work as the the tipo have you been able to restore tribal knowledge or kind of work with oral histories into restoring traditions or, or kind of like you know maintaining traditions sure so we actually one of the women that's in my department her name's danielle summers she's our cultural activities coordinator her whole job is to make sure that our tribal members are participating in cultural activity and so we have every friday we have something called culture classes um, where they come up to Omashi's house, uh, which translates to grandmother's house. Oh, cool. Um, they come up to Omashi's house, and they learn basketry. They learn how to make regalia. Um, they just recently made some dolls with little miniature regalia so that they could start practicing how to make their own regalia in, in a larger scale. And in addition to that, we actually go out and we gather um, all of the materials for those classes ourselves. 
um, which we can't, it's a little bit harder to schedule gathering trips um, because it's all based on the seasons and the weather. Yeah. But we do, we go out any every season and we gather camas, we do cedar, we do sedge and tule, and it's it's a great opportunity. I get, I love that I get to participate in that um, as well, but it's really important that we get our tribal members out there on the, on the ground and participating. We also are kind of in the beginning of a language initiative program. The Cookwell tribe speaks three different languages. So the they speak um, Milik, Athabaskan, and Shinnokwawa. Shinnokwawa is a trade language, so most of the tribes in this area would have spoken it. But we, through the Athabaskan and the Milik, most of that's been lost, and we don't have any fluent speakers of any of those languages in the tribe. We do have a tribal member that's been studying uh, Milik, and we're working on creating, or he's working on creating a, a dictionary, and we're working on hopefully getting a a teacher on staff so that they can start we can start teaching Athabasca and Millick and Shinnokwawa to all of the tribal members. Wow, that's incredible and it sounds like a very difficult task. The other day I was I was looking up the the language families of of Oregon tribes and I saw that Athabascan is kind of like the the root for a lot of the languages, but uh, I forget what the number was, but it was just a depressingly low number of fluent speakers, you know, living today. I think it was like less than 80, if, if I remember the number right. Yeah, Athabascan's an interesting language. I mean, it, it spreads all the way from, you know, Alaska down to, well, I think Arizona, Nevada, it with different dialects. But the dialect that was spoken right here, there there are no fluent speakers that are that are native for our we do have a woman named J.C. Hall who's studying for her Ph.D. at, I think, at U of O, um, and she's been studying the Coquel dialect for Athabascan, and so she is a master speaker, um, which is fantastic. She's a great resource for us. We're constantly pestering her for questions and for help on different things. Nice. Um, so hopefully between her and between the tribal member that we have and the, the work that other tribes have done on Chinookwawa, we will have a, hopefully a, a great program when it eventually gets up and running. That's incredible. And it would be cool to make that digitally available as, as well so that, uh, you know, it, it gets uh, an even bigger platform. Yeah. And, you know, we, the Cocoa Indian tribe, I think something like 50% of the tribal members don't actually live in, in the tribal service area. They don't even live in Oregon. We have tribal members that are overseas. We have tribal members in um, Florida and New York and Virginia. So anything that we do, we try to find a way to make it so that it's available um, to all of our tribal members. And hopefully we can we can eventually make it so that it's available to public and for, for things like language, you know, there it would be great to be able to, to reach out to a larger community. That's an incredible service right there. It's really exciting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's some community building on a pretty big scale. So that's, that's really awesome. It is. Yeah. We, uh, unfortunately it's going to be years before it's really a really strong program. We're just at the very beginning stages. We just finished visiting a couple of other tribes language programs. We just got back from Quamish tribe. Uh, who gave us um, some do's and don'ts about their starting their program, and they let us sit in on their their language class so that we could really see how they run their program and gave us some good starting points. Nice, nice. That's again, that's a good example of uh, collaboration with other tribes. Well, do you have any other things that you'd like to share about your work, or you know, any any advice to uh, 
early career archaeologists or undergrads? Well, the one thing I guess that that I would stress to any archaeologist, whether you're just starting out or been doing this for a while, we're not here to to get in the way of your projects. You know, the one thing that I hear from a lot of people that are coming in is that we're going to try to stop even their their field schools and things because the tribe uh, tribe has a policy that archaeology is destructive. And it, I mean, it is. It's a destructive science. Yeah. Uh, and so a lot of ar- archaeologists are worried that we're going to say, no, you can't do that, or that you know, we're, we're going to try to, in some way to, to railroad the project. And I, I want to stress that we're here to, to help, that we are here to learn, and that um, communication with us is always really, it, it's a good thing, and that we are here to work with you, not against you, kind of the biggest message I can put out there. Yeah, and I think that adversarial relationships have been developed you know, over time and archaeology hasn't always been the most um, constructive uh, field, I guess. I mean, you you had made a, a great comment there about it being a, a destructive science, but also, you know, I think in many ways it's been destructive to communities and destructive to the trust relationships. So, you know, I, I think that that's a really great point to, to end the show on is, um, you know, that there's the way forward is a collaborative one and it's a one that builds trust relationships and it's a one that builds communities and, you know, builds cultural knowledge and uh, while all the time preserving cultural heritage. So that's, that's incredible. Well, that's all I've got for you uh, today. And Cassie, thank you so much for joining the show. Well, thanks for having me. Can you tell this was the first time I talked to a Tippo? Uh, One of the tough things about going back through the archives, especially as these episodes go even further back in time, is hearing how much my perspectives, knowledge, and interviewer techniques have changed. Sometimes it's a little cringy. So brace yourselves as we go even deeper into the archives. The goal is to release an archive episode about once a month and have a new episode about once a month. So uh, this is what you have to look forward to for a while. And then once we run out of archives, uh, then I guess we have to figure out how to record more new episodes. But uh, I guess we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. If you're new-ish to the show and you're wondering what's up with these archive episodes, Go Dig a Hole started off as a blog, which is currently dead uh, because it got hacked. Uh, and injected with malware and all of that is above my pay grade but the blog will come back this summer Uh, and eventually that blog that go dig a hole started off as became a podcast and that podcast got burnt by a podcast network we're not going to name and had to start over as an independent listener supported podcast so here we are now and if you like what we're doing you can support it on patreon at Patreon dot com forward slash go dig a hole what we're doing with go dig a hole is we have this podcast and on the patreon site uh we put out a few blog posts that accompany every episode and then some bonuses for the public and some bonuses for supporters Uh, supporters get some really cool stickers we have a logo that was designed by Derek walker who's one of the designers behind Nike's uh, skateboarding line, Nike SB. Uh, Super talented guy, 
really fun to work with got a good heart, helped us out in a big way. So in addition to the podcast, we also go out to archaeology conferences and local events and uh, engage with uh, engage with the professional and uh, avocational archaeology societies. Um, and we also have public digs. So this is one of the things that we're trying to support. There's a lot of goals, plenty of things that we're trying to do, a lot of uh, good causes behind this. So we're a small team. We're self-funded. Every dollar goes a very long way, uh, and it basically just helps us keep the thing running without killing ourselves. And we have a lot of goals uh, that support the mission of making archaeology a more inclusive field that is relevant to the public and something that we can use Go Dig a Hole as a vehicle to make it accessible to early career archaeologists, people who are in the field and just need a boost, or you know, marginalized people in, in, in groups that are traditionally discriminated against. So we try and provide a positive platform that benefits both people who are in archaeology and people who are just curious about it. So all of your support is super appreciated and we've already done a lot with your help. So thank you. If you dig the music that we use at the intro and outro of this podcast, that's been graciously provided by a post-punk band from Louisville, Kentucky called Invaders. So big, big shout out to my good friend, JC Dennison, who was the drummer in that band Invaders uh, for letting me use this music. It's been pretty awesome. Yeah.